let's begin. Open up your Bibles. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I made sure not to forget the recorder this time. And it's actually on. And the battery is fully charged. Revelation chapter 3. I'm there. Alright. Uh, who here is familiar with the story of Cinderella? Of course Caleb is. The basic generic one that doesn't matter how many remakes or how many sequels or how many redos they did of it. There is no Cinderella 7. Alright. Let's bring it in. Let's bring it in. Who can tell everybody what the basic premise of Cinderella is? She's really buff. Uh, raise your hand and wait to be called on. This is why you should not have Red 40 or sugar, especially the night of church. There's actually no dye. Is it dye free? Yeah. Well, you guys can thank my wife for that. Hannah, did you want to say the. Sure. What's the story of Cinderella? The basic story. So basically, Cinderella is like the servant, and her stepsisters and stepmother like treat her bad, and she falls in love with the prince, loses her shoe, and then he finds her with the shoe, and they live happily ever after. Yeah. It's a slipper. It's a glass flipper. <laughs> Semantics, tomato, tomato. But no, that is a basic general premise of Cinderella. She's the one that, that nobody wanted. She was the forgotten one. She was the one that was behind the scenes. She was not the one who was always up front like her sisters were. She was the one that was never brought up and was always the, the one that was going to be used for uh, to marry the next prince or the Prince Charming or whatever. No, 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 no. She was the one that was kept locked away. She was the one that was hidden. She was the one that was forgotten. And really, she should not have been the one to have gotten the man at the end. <laughs> what is, do you need to be excused? Yes. Why don't you go get a drink of water? Regroup, recollect yourself. <laughs> Sam, if you need to join him. I, I'm just laughing because he's laughing. I don't even know why. <laughs> I don't know. Did Heather lace that with something? That's the basic premise of Cinderella. Now, those of you guys who are sports fans, you probably have heard of a Cinderella story or you've heard of a team that's not ranked, not seated being the underdog coming from behind to be either uh, you know, in the final four or to go all the way to the championship. Am I right? I've never heard of that. Point. Really? Nope. You never heard like an NCAA March Madness, how it's called a Cinderella story? Nope. Is it? Okay. Others have. Yes. Thank you. Essentially, let's bring it in. Let's bring it in. Essentially, it's an underdog story. Essentially, it is the person who should not have gone to the Final Four, who should not have been in the championship. There they are. They somehow made it. And for everything we've been through in the last eight weeks, is that not the story of the church? She was the forgotten one. She was the one that was left in the dirt. She was the one where when everybody else was trying to get the preeminence, they tried to lock her away so that she couldn't get to be with her prince, so she couldn't get to be before all of the world to be with her husband so that all the world knows who she really loves. But yet she was chosen, yet she came forth. She had the glass slipper. And all the world got to see that she was the one, she was the true bride of Christ. Not the ugly stepsisters, not the evil mean stepsisters, no, no, no. It was always the church, the bride of Christ. That's what we've looked at the last couple of weeks, going from 0 A.D. all the way up to 1900 A.D., the present time, and that's where we pick up tonight. Point number seven, the last church period, Laodicea. You know, we started getting out flyers for this class on, uh, to promote it, to get the word out, and we asked a simple question about this whole entire study of Revelation. Do you wonder? Do you wonder how much time is left? Do you wonder how much time actually there is on this earth before Jesus Christ comes back for us? Do you wonder if this is the end? Do you wonder if all the things the Bible has to say are true? Well, as we've gone through the last 2,000 years of church history, we find to close out Revelation chapter 3, we come to a church period 
And it's the last one we haven't covered yet. And as a little glimpse of what's coming in two weeks' time, look at chapter 4, verse 1. After this... After what? After what? After the churches. After Revelation chapter 2. After Revelation chapter 3. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in where? You guys there? Somebody other than Sam? Heaven. Heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, John, a picture and a type of the church, which said, what the voice say? Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. That is a very unique phrase in Scripture. Come up hither is a phrase that is used in Song of Solomon by the king of Israel to his predominantly Gentile bride, calling her to come away with him, to come up hither and be with him. This here, as we're going to see in a couple weeks' time, it's the rapture of the church. You know another way we know that? The word church doesn't show up again until Revelation chapter 19 at the actual second coming of Christ when He comes back to take this world over by force. Just how close to the end? Do you wonder if we actually are in the last days? Well, here we are, the last church period, and right after this, immediately after this, we see heaven opening up and a voice saying, Come up hither. And John, a type and a picture of the church, goes up to be with Christ. Thus entering a seven-year tribulation period, such of which the world has never seen. If that's the case, we should probably look at some characteristics that describe this church period. Shall we? Before we do that, I need a volunteer to pray. Kendall. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Here's what Jesus Christ has to say about this church. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. Pick a choice. Pick a side. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. A violent, vomiting reaction, in other words. Why? Verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore. And what? Repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Laodicea. Approximate time frame, 1900 to the present day. You know, there's a familiar verse we looked at, I think, at the very beginning of this class, 2 Peter chapter 3, and it talks about how a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Practical application of that, God is not bound by time. To us, a thousand years is as one day to Him. It's interesting, because you look at the days of creation. How many days of creation were there? Seven. Seven. 
That's interesting. Seven days, 7,000 years. You guys know how much time the Old Testament was? Oh, you're going to go ahead and go specifics there, James Usher. Yeah, about 4,004 years approximately, if you go with James Usher's chronology. The Old Testament. You know how long the church period has been that we've covered so far? And for those of you, I know we haven't gotten this far in our study yet, but uh, uh, what comes after this? Yeah, I know seven years of tribulation, but the millennial reign of Christ. How much is a millennium? Hmm. Carry the four. Okay. A thousand years is as a day. Hmm. And remind me again, what did God do on that seventh day? Rested. Wow. So if that is how human history from Adam till the reign of Christ is, this kind of scares me. Because if Christ is what started the Gregorian calendar, 0 AD, and 2,000 years later, hmm, somebody was off in their calculations. It's not God. Either way, I'd say we're on borrowed time. When you look at this chronology of human history, 1900 to the present day. You know, when I started walking with God in 2003, I did not think I was going to see graduation in 2006. I thought for sure God was coming back before I graduated. You know what that did? It caused me to go to school differently. It caused me to see what really mattered in my life differently as far as extracurricular activities, as far as who I spent my time with, as far as what got my passions, what got my desires, what I set my affection on. When you have that kind of a mindset and you think God can come back at any moment at any time now, it changes the way you live your life. It's not me patting myself on my back because when I saw that he didn't come back senior year, gotten into a little bit of college, a little bit into JBI, I started to lose sight of this picture little by little. And God's just kind of starting to bring me back into it again. Where I'm starting to reevaluate what really matters and what really is deserving of my time. Laodicea. Names mean something. We've seen that with all seven periods of church history. Laodicea is no different. You know what Laodicea means? Civil rights. Oh boy. That's a hot topic. It means the rights of the people, my personal rights. Stank, I don't think I put this in, did I? No, I didn't. Hold your place here. Turn over to Judges 21. We've seen this before. Anybody tell me from memory what book does the book of Judges come after? Joshua. After... A militant leader named Joshua, whose name just so happens to translate to Jesus in the New Testament, after he leads his people, the Israelites, into the promised land. And they have this great, you could say, missionary activity of such. A missionary activity kind of similar to the ones that we kind of looked at last week with Philadelphia. Check out the podcast if you don't know or if you weren't here last week. A military conquest, a missionary activity, if you will. And immediately after that book of Joshua comes the book of Judges. You know what's interesting about the book of Judges? Israel falls into a cycle of sin and rebellion seven times over throughout the course of the entire book. And this book ends, Judges 21-25, with this. In those days... Anybody remember what the phrase those days is synonymous with? The end times. In those days, there was no king in Israel, no lord, no master. And every man did that which was right in whose eyes? Yeah. You see, we live in a day and an age right now where there is no absolute truth. Two plus two does not equal four anymore. In fact, that is actually becoming a legitimate cause of concern in most classrooms today. 
where to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to now deem you as racist. Just look at the basic tenets of critical race theory and how they're trying to change math courses of all things. Absolute truth is no more. It is now relative truth. Well, what is truth to you might be different truth for me. That's relative truth. That's rationalism. It's trying to explain things that are unexplainable using man's wisdom, man's logic, intellectualism, and humanistic thinking and reasoning. That's the day and age in which we live in. I touched on last week how guys like Darwin, Spinoza, Immanuel Kant, all of these philosophers, Free, uh, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, all of these heathens started coming up towards the end of the late 1800s, but their philosophies, they were kind of seen as kooks during then. It's not until this day and age that you start to see these men of renown being looked upon as men to be feared and listened to. Because we've given over absolute truth. Absolute truth means there is a right and there is a wrong. Rape is either right or it is wrong. There is no gray area. There is no justifiable reason for anybody to rape anyone. No justifiable reason. That is an absolute truth as solid as 2 plus 2 equals 4. This book that you hold in your hand is absolute truth. It is not relative to what you believe versus what I believe. No. What does it say? Because Romans says, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God's word interpret itself and speak for itself. Look again at verse 14, back in Revelation chapter 3. As always with all seven of these letters, Jesus Christ introduces himself to this church in a way that is very, very unique to each of the churches. And this one's no exception. I want to see if you guys can notice it. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Anything stand out to you guys in that? Something that's different and unique to any of the other letters. Carson? Um, it's God speaking. Or like, yeah. He's been speaking for the intro for all seven of them. Yes. Okay. Sam? Two different things. First, he says the amen, as in how you end things. Yeah. And second, the beginning of the creation of God. He pointed out creation, which kind of speaks to this age. Of Absolutely. Actually, all three of those things. The amen, which means literally truth. Just touched on truth. The faithful and true witness. Boy, no one seems to be witnessing these days like they did back in Philadelphia. And yes, the beginning of the creation of God. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ was the first created being. No, it means that all of creation began with Jesus Christ. It comes from here. Don't be confused by the preposition of. But that's co coincidentally not the thing I was looking for. We're not going to go through all seven for sake of time, but let's just start with Sardis in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Under the angel of the church in Sardis. Sardis is a city. Jump down to verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Right. Philadelphia is a city. Now jump down to verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Laodiceans is a people of the city of Laodicea. Every other church is known for the city that it represents. It represents that city. It is a church in that city, not with Laodicea. This is a church of the Laodiceans. It is a church of the people, by the people, and for the people. So help me, me. Glaring characteristic of Laodicea, where it's all about me. No other church. You can check out chapter 2 later. Every other church is known by its city that it represented. This is a church of the people because it's all about them. It's right there in the name. Second bullet point. This is the era just prior to the rapture and tribulation where the deceived church is apathetic. It means they're careless towards God's words and consequently in a lukewarm state of unprofitable worldliness. You know what Satan's attack method is? Counterfeit and deception. It's the same old tricks, same old bag of goodies he's had since the Garden of Eden. He doesn't change his plan. He might change the form and the appearance and the way that he does attack, 
but his tactics have always been the same since the garden. To counter, to counter God's word, to counterfeit God's word, and to confound or stop God's word. You see this in Genesis chapter 3. You see it in Matthew chapter 4 when he tempted Christ. All three of those things were being used. And it's the exact same tactic he employs in your life every single day. To try to come against you. To try to make it look as though it's good. To try to make it look as though it's godly. And when he does that and he gets you to latch on to the bait, he stops the work of God. Counterfeit and deception. The commendation. Did you catch it? Not one positive thing to be said about this church period. Now, I want to ask a question, and I want you guys, it's rhetorical, so just think about it. Does that sound like what you've been told about Christianity today all your life? Have you been told, yeah, you know what, this is the worst period of church in all of history? That's not the message. That's not the message that pastors and teachers are purporting from pulpits all across America. They say this is the absolute greatest time to be alive. They say that more work is being done to further the kingdom of Christ than ever before. I challenged them to listen to last week's podcast, but they won't listen to me. No. Jesus Christ has not one positive thing to say during this church time. Not one. Yet they believe they have it all together. Just listen to this. Laodicean period is marred by materialism and intellectualism like no other time in human history. I mean, when we were going through the stories of the martyrs, did it sound like they all came from wealth? No. Interestingly, with the abundance of money and intelligence, most of the world's population today lives in absolute squalor. Right and wrong is so convoluted, anyone without a Bible is unable to discern the difference. I have this passage on the screen here if you want to add this to your notes. Malachi 2.17 God is saying, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied Him? The church is the same way. They don't see how they've disobeyed Him. And here's God's response. When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? Does that not sound like today? People calling that which is evil good? People calling that which is actually godly? They're saying it's evil? Uh, have you seen what's going on in our capital the last couple of days? With the announcement that Roe v. Wade might actually be going back to the states? And it might not be a federal mandate where you're allowed to have an abortion anymore? Does it seem like people are at the Capitol saying, this is evil, but we want to keep doing our evil? No, they don't believe it as such. They're saying it's good. They're saying it's health care. They're saying that it's a good thing. And of course, why are they able to say this with such stern confidence? Because where's the God of judgment? God's not going to judge me for this one day. There is no God. I have to believe that in order for me to continue in my sin. Because I'm not going to be held accountable for my words and my actions and my deeds. And so I can do whatever I want freely. That's the mindset of today. When you eliminate absolute truth, it makes it very easy for you to believe whatever truth you want to believe. period is marked by an incredible volume of technological advances. Hmm. It's very important to note that although technology has benefited mankind, no technology has caused mankind to live longer. I'm not talking about, oh, well, my, my grandparents or my, my mom or dad, whatever, they were given six months to live, and now, hey, here they are seven years later. No, I'm not talking about that. The basic average age of people is still 80 years. No technology has caused us to get back to the days in the age where we were 100, 200, 300 years old. No technology has done that. The only true advancement to affect all of mankind is twofold. One, we've increased the ability to kill each other faster and more efficiently than ever before. And two, the ability to unite as human beings through advanced communications and travel. Both things prophesied in God's Word. Write down Daniel chapter 12. I've said it before at the beginning of this class. Revelation, the Old Testament book of Revelation is the book of Daniel. God is saying, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book 
even to the time of the what? End. Many shall run to and fro. They're going to be able to get from point A to point B like never before, Daniel. And not only that, knowledge shall be increased. Things are so much better off today. That's the point behind this article. Ten reasons that now is the best time to be alive, although there's definitely more. Number one, you have access to virtually any type of content you wish to consume in an instant. Travel to and fro, people. They can get information to and fro like that, whether it be through Google, YouTube, Facebook, Netflix, and so on. You have access to videos, photos, courses, and a variety of content to solve your problems or maybe just make you smile and maybe completely and utterly destroy your life too. You have a supercomputer a super in your smartphone that can teach you virtually anything. That's a good thing to them. Again, there are some benefits to it, but there's an awful lot of hell in a device. Hell in a device. I didn't say hell of a device. Hell in a device that could cause you to stumble. You don't need to attend a university or college to gain the knowledge and skills to succeed in many areas of life. It can pretty much be done on your smartphone nowadays. Social media has allowed us to connect and stay up to date with our family and friends. We can see what our closest friends and family are doing in their lives without having to call or text. Everyone is busy these days, so it's easier to get a quick snapshot of what people are up to. I love being able to see how my nieces and nephews are growing when I don't get to see them for months at a time. Social media has allowed us to connect with like-minded individuals or groups all over the world. You're able to connect, run to and fro, and have knowledge increase just as Daniel predicted way in the Old Testament, 500 BC approximately. With forums and all of the social media channels, we can get in touch with and share information with those who have similar interests as us who live all over the globe. You want to do an interesting search tonight? Just Google social media use and narcissism. You know what narcissism is? It's an extreme love of yourself. There has been studies conducted, not by Christians, mind you, that show a direct correlation between an increase in social media use and an increase of narcissism, where people are so in love with themselves. It's the me, my selfie, and iPhone culture. That's what we've become. Anybody know what 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2 says? This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. It's the very first characteristic that Paul mentions in the second to last chapter he ever writes before losing his head, describing the day and age in which we live in. And yet they believe they have it all together. This is the greatest time to be alive, after all. And he gets to the condemnation. We saw it, we read it, we know it. They are lukewarm, Christ says. They're not cold, they're not hot. Mark it down. We are uniting together just like they did in Genesis chapter 11 for the Tower of Babel. All of us uniting together in this ecumenical hold hands with the world. Let's just all get along. Let's forsake our doctrines, forsake our Bibles. Let's forsake the cross. And let's just see what commonality we have between all of our other religions. We all want the same common good, right, fellas? Yeah, so let's all join around and sing Kumbaya together. And we'll build a kingdom here for us on this earth. That's how we'll reach and attain heaven. It's the exact same thing they did in Genesis 11. They make God one of vomit. Look again at verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I, this is Christ speaking, will spew thee out of my mouth. Isn't that a pretty picture? I don't know whether this is something that will literally happen at the judgment seat of Christ, or if it's something that's more devotional as far as Christ chastening you on this earth and spewing you out of his mouth to just have a life of misery if you're not walking with Him during this time or not. But imagine if it is at the judgment seat of Christ. Imagine if when you show up to heaven and you see your king in his kingly garb and his robe and his many crowns and he has a scepter in his hand and he sees you and he just vomits at the sight of your Christianity. The sight of your life for being lukewarm. Isn't that a pretty picture? especially with the scars 
the nail imprints in his hands and in his feet and the scars that are forever remaining in his body have the vomit dripping down his kingly robe and garment after what he did for you. I get it, and we'll see this in the days to come here with the study of Revelation. One day, he's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes. He's going to take away all pain and suffering and sorrow. But if he does that, that is an image that will stick with you forever in all of eternity. They say, in verse 17, I am rich and increased with goods, and I have need of nothing. I am rich. I have the riches of Christ. I have the wealth of Christ living in me. I'm increased with goods. I have need of nothing. I don't need to go to church to be a good Christian. I don't need to read my Bible every single day of the week. I don't need to talk with God in prayer. I don't need to share my faith with others. I have need of nothing. Understand, they're not lying. Because look what he says in verse 17. They say... I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but knowest not. They don't realize it. The defining characteristic, the defining character quality of the Laodicean lukewarm church is self-deception. Meaning that if you think you're okay with God, you might not know that you're really not. That's something that should scare every single one of us, myself included. Do you see why every single morning you need to wake up with a humility that says, God, I need you today? Even if you're not really going through much, if anything, just to make sure your heart is right with Him to start the day properly so that you're not living a self-deceived Christian life thinking that you're okay when in reality you might not be. And they don't realize on your outline they're wretched. The word wretched only shows up three times in the entire Bible. Once is here. The very first time, Numbers chapter 11, verse 15. Moses, he is so worn out and exhausted from the Israelites wearing him down, wearing him down with their whining, their murmurings and disputings and not willing to just suck it up and obey and get through the pro to the promised land. They wore him out so much where Moses says, God, you need to bring me some help. I am so wretched right now, I, I feel like I am about ready to die. Just take me out. I can't do this anymore. Moses actually said that. He was wretched. You know the other time it shows up? Romans 7.24. Paul says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Mark it down. It doesn't say so implicitly here. But the other two times in the Bible where the word wretched is mentioned, it's associated with death. It's associated with death. The other two times, I think it's pretty safe about to say it's associated with death here. Their spiritual walk with Christ is dying. Probably because they're becoming too comfortable with the body of this death instead of mortifying the deeds of the flesh daily. God calls them miserable. Likewise, that word only shows up three times in the entire Bible. One is here. The very first time, I'm sorry, the second time, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 19. Look what Paul says here. I love the way he words this. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. There was actually a rumor going around in Corinth that Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. And Paul's saying, if that's the case, you got a big problem because you're still in your sins. If Christ didn't rise again from the grave, then pff, ain't none of us okay. Ain't none of our sins forgiven. And then he says in verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, meaning a Christ they believed hadn't risen from the grave, if that's their hope, then we are of all men most miserable. You know how he describes it here? Miserable is living as though Jesus Christ didn't walk out of a tomb alive defeating sin and death, conquering your sins, and forever eradicating them from existence, from his perspective of things. There are Christians that walk around as though Jesus Christ isn't alive, as though he didn't conquer sin and death and hell and the grave. There are Christians who walk around miserable as though they don't have everlasting life. 
Do you realize any pain, any torment, any hell that you experience, it's only going to be on this earth? That you have been saved and redeemed from an eternity spent suffering in an eternal lake of fire? That fact in and of itself should pull any of us out of a pit of depression, whatever it may be. Not saying the issue you're going through isn't real. They're certainly real. But when you realize that, that the Lord and the God and the King that you serve has given you eternal life, we should not be miserable. That should at least get it, cause us to smile throughout the day. You know the second time, first time miserable shows up in the Bible? Job 16.2. Job speaking says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. Anybody want to take a stab in the dark as to who he's talking about there? His three supposed friends. You know what? I see that happen too a lot in Christianity. Some cases even here. Where we can be miserable comforters to people who need it. The third time it shows up, we just read it. It describes this church period the day and age in which we live in. Calls them poor, calls them blind, calls them naked. Significant historical events that, during, that happened during this time period. Again, rise of materialism. Never before had the church seen any kind of wealth like that. Intellectualism. Man, we could go on and on about that forever. Man starting to think that he's smarter than God. Man falling in love with philosophy. Colossians 2.8 warns against that. We talked about right becoming wrong and wrong becoming right. Advances in technology, scientific knowledge and inventions, but they don't increase one's life. Again, more efficiently kill one another and advance communication and travel as prophesied in the book of Daniel. Next page. More people are recognizing Rome as their spiritual ancestor. What do I mean by that? Remember in the last couple weeks that we talked about uh, the, the Protestant Reformation, how there were a group of people... A group of men that were within and a part of the Catholic Church, the Reformers, they realized, man, all these things that happened with the Crusades and the Inquisitions, this is what the Church supposedly stands for? This can't be right. And then because Bible believers started translating the copies of the Scriptures, these men got their hands on them like, yeah, uh, that's not what the Bible says. But they started to not preach necessarily against Rome, not like our spiritual ancestors were for centuries before that. No, they instead just wanted to reform Rome and make it her own, make it their own. And you know what's interesting about that? Again, there are a lot of knucklehead Baptist churches out there. I could name one specifically off the top of my head, but I won't. There are a lot of knucklehead Baptist church out there, a lot of knucklehead Baptists who believe crazy, insane doctrine because they take the Bible and they twist it out of context to their own destruction, the Bible says in 2 Peter. But a lot of these Protestant churches that come from these reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox who started the Presbyterian movement, Ulrich Zwingli, who kind of was a, a roundabout way. He's kind of Calvinist, but he also kind of helped start the Methodist movement. A lot of these Protestant churches, they're starting to revert back to mama, to the mother church. Just check out some of the things that they believe. Check out some of their doctrinal statements. A lot of false denominations with false doctrines propagated from false Bibles. It's starting to sound an awful lot like Rome, whereas they didn't at first. And that's not every church. But again, like I mentioned last week, guys like John Wesley and Charles Wesley, they were Methodists. George Whitfield, I believe, was a Presbyterian. Back then, we all had a common Bible and we all had things in common and believed the same things. It was just our methods that differed. But we all believed the same stuff and all that had the same doctrine. Nowadays, it's been so watered down and so muddy down that a Protestant church is starting to have a Catholic priest come in their pulpit and share how the two churches are actually rather similar. A church in this area did that not too long ago. One of the most well-known churches in this area. Not only that, on your outline, we see World War I and World War II. Nothing like that had ever happened before in history before. 
Middle Eastern conflict between Arabs and Jews. It's all a battle over the land because in that land is where Jesus Christ is going to set up his throne. It's all a battle. Ecumenicalism, compromise to offend no one. All join hands in the name of peace. It's the Tower of Babel resurgent. The church becomes more social in nature rather than biblical. Hey, you know what we're going to do in a few short months when we go down to Mexico? Help build a building. Like many other churches and many other youth groups go for missions trips throughout the world. Difference being, we're going to preach the gospel when we go down there. In some way, some form, some shape, the gospel is going to be preached. But there's this push, and there has been really ever since the 1950s and 1960s, to where mission trips should be all social in nature. Let's build a school. Let's build a hospital. Let's do all this humanitarian good so that it makes people's lives more comfortable here on this earth. But we're not going to share the gospel with them lest we offend them. But hey, at least we can make the road to hell a little bit more comfortable for them before they perish forever. See, they won't say that because they don't realize that. They say what they're doing is biblical. They say what they're doing is godly. And knowest not, thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the state of churches today. Again, go build schools, build hospitals. But if that's it, and if you're not sharing the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ with these kids or with these people, it's for nothing. It's just humanitarian good work. They assume prosperity is God's blessing. The they, uh, Bible even talks about that. They assume that gain is godliness. Uh, they assume prosperity is God's blessing and fool themselves into thinking God is pleased with them. And I already discussed 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 earlier. You can read the rest of that description that Paul has to say later on tonight. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. You want to know how you can identify a Laodicean? For me, it's very easy. All I have to do is look in the mirror. Ways you can identify a Laodicean, Matthew chapter 6. That's why it's good from time to time to familiarize yourself with stories of missionaries during the Philadelphian time frame. That's why it's good every now and then to refresh yourself with what the martyrs had to go through in Fox's Book of Martyrs and Martyr's Mirror. When you do that, you look at your service and you're like, man, I am nothing. I am nothing. So much left to give. Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve. You cannot serve God and mammon. Or filthy lucre, the, the riches of this world, in other words. You can't have both. You see in your outline there, they think they can love God and money at the same time. But understand something. Maybe it's not money for you. Because you guys are in high school. You're not in, you don't really have jobs yet. Or if you do have jobs, it's not jobs that you're looking at as a career right now. You're going to get rich off of. But maybe you do struggle with that. But if it's not money, fill in the blank. Fill it in with whatever gets your time, with whatever gets your talent, and with whatever gets your treasure. Because, look at verse 21. For where your, what? Treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what's got your heart? What's got your heart? If it's not money... Is it my grades? Is it making sure I get into an Ivy League school in college? Is it making sure that I am the star athlete on my team? Is it making sure that Christ is known to every single person who knows me? What's got your heart? Next, they think they are worshiping God while in the process of robbing Him. I have Haggai 1.6 up here on the screen. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ugh. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. 
Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. That sounds a lot like you are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but really you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, doesn't it? And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. In other words, there are Christians who live their entire life going to church every Sunday, maybe even reading their Bibles every single day, but when they get to the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to have nothing to show for it. They felt like they were doing much, but they have nothing. Maybe they were taking it all in, but not working out their faith daily, like 2 Corinthians talks about. Next point, they think they know God, but never win anyone to saving faith in Christ. Turn over to John 15. And I get it. We are called to be sowers. God gets the increase. God is the one who actually leads people to saving faith in Christ. We are just vessels fit to use. And I get it. Jeremiah had zero converts. I talked to you guys last week about David Brainerd. He had very, very little converts. There are other ways to show forth fruit. I get that. But are you at least trying? Are we at least attempting to win others to Christ? I need, uh, I want two readers. Carson 1 through 3, Sam 4 to 5. Go ahead, Carson. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, pur purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. Read that last part again. For without me ye can do nothing. Read that last part again. For without me ye can do nothing. We need to abide in Christ. We need to walk closely with Him on a daily basis. It is the only way we will be successful in our Christian walk. There is no other way. People come to church all their lives, every Sunday and every Wednesday, but they don't have a walk with God. And they accomplish nothing for Him. I don't want that said of me. I don't want that said of any of you. We must remain close to Christ. And when we do that, we will naturally bear fruit. That's what letting your light shine is all about. It will draw people in the darkness to your light. We were just talking about this at Mexico training two weeks ago, about all of these opportunities just coming out of the wazoo. Because things are so dark and abhorrent right now, people are seeing your light and they're wanting to know what sets you apart. Let it shine. Be close with Him. And know how to answer every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Titus 1.16 says, They profess they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Again, you look at the context of this passage, it's not talking about lost people. Saved people can know Jesus Christ as their Savior, but not know Him, not walk with Him regularly not walk with Him daily. It's what Christ said in the book of Matthew, I think it's chapter 10, and He's quoting the book of Isaiah, that they honor Me with their mouths, but their heart is far from Me. In works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Eek. Next point, they think they are godly, but never suffer persecution. What's 2 Timothy 3.12 say? A verse everyone should memorize. And they will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is guaranteed. Flip on over to John 16.33. Christ did promise to give us life and to give us life more abundant. And man, what an exciting life it is. But, 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 verse 33. Can I get a reader for that? Heather. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the, word, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You are going to have issues in this life. 
any pastor who tries to stand up here and say that God only cares to give you wealth, health, isn't there a third one? Health, wealth, and I don't know, something other. It's called the prosperity gospel. Any pastor who comes up here and tries to swindle you and say that your life is going to be better with Jesus, that's a false gospel. In a way, your life will be better with Jesus. But we just read from Christ's own words that in this world you're going to have tribulation. In fact, earlier in that chapter, he says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Are you hated? Are you hated? Hmm. Haven't asked myself that question in a while. So I guess if I'm going to ask you guys that, I should probably ask myself that. Am I hated? What do others at work think of me? What do those at school think of you? Man, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want us to turn to all of these passages because I want you to see just how littered all throughout the New Testament passages like these are. And that to live a lukewarm Christian life was never, ever the plan of God. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 20. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, in other words, if you are suffering because of your own boneheaded mistakes and falling into sin, okay, wow, yeah, you should take it patiently. But if you did nothing wrong, you're just walking with God and you're suffering for it, that's a true test of patience. <gasps> I think we're talking about patience on Sundays. Hmm. But when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For Oh, don't miss verse 21. Please don't miss verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. Hey, you want to know what the calling of God is in your life? Keep reading verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for who? Us. Leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Remember when he said, take up his cross and follow him daily? who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, even though you are completely justified in some cases to lash back at somebody and give them a good old tongue lashing for something they said or did to you. If there's anyone on this planet who was justified in doing so, was it not Christ when he was on the cross? Yet he answered him not a word. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who bear his own, or whose own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Man, we were called to suffer. We're following in his steps. But see, Laodicea wants everything to be so comfortable, so at peace. You know what's interesting? Jeremiah talks about when people say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, avoid those people. This is not the time of peace. This is the time of war. We are in a spiritual battle. We are in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Peace is coming, but not yet. So fight and give it your all and take that hill as you carry your cross daily. Next, they have no need to trust God because they provided everything on their own. Oh, we got time. Luke 12. We don't have that many passages to go to anyways. You guys want a, a little historical tidbit about the city of Laodicea during the time of John? In 60 AD, the city of Laodicea was completely leveled with an earthquake. You know how long it took them to rebuild? Two years. This is a metropolitan city leveled by an earthquake. Two years time, they rebuilt the entire city. And get this, they did it all utilizing their own funds. No government stimulus package. 
no help from other nations, all themselves. That's how wealthy they were in Laodicea. Hmm. Wonder if that has a spiritual application to us today. Luke twenty or Luke twelve. Did I say twenty one? Luke twelve. Verse fifteen. Can I get a reader to verse twenty one? Sam. Yep. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth consisteth riot or consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater. Mm. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, we were faced with a choice as a church. I don't know if you know this or not, but in our sanctuary, that back wall is all made of vinyl. We can blow that wall out any time and build a bigger barn. We can tear down, build a bigger barn, and add more seats. Or we could sow seed elsewhere. We chose to multiply because that's been the plan throughout eternity past. Be careful what you're building up on this earth. Be careful whose kingdom you're building up. His or your own. Laodicean Christians are so busy on building up their own. That's why they're so consumed with where they're going to go to college. That's why they're so consumed on going to college and not even contemplating the possibility, hear me on that, not even contemplating the possibility that maybe God doesn't want you to go to college. Maybe. I'm going to touch on that in a later point. Whose kingdom are you building? Next point, they are confident and content about their spiritual state. Last passage, Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Follow along with me in verse 30. Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. Speak one to another, everyone to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh from the Lord. That's what preaching is. Verse 31. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words... But they will not, what? Do them. For with their mouth, that's another passage, they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. Understand something. Don't be deceived in thinking you can't be deceived. Did you hear me on that? Don't be deceived in thinking that you can't be deceived. If you do, then you're deceiving yourself. Seems redundant. But again, as we just saw in Revelation 3, Laodiceans don't get that. Verse 32, And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice. A lot of music and a lot of singing in Laodicean churches today. And can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do not. They do them not. And when this cometh to pass... And lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. They're confident and content about their spiritual state. In other words, they don't want to be challenged to walk closer with God. They don't want to be challenged to get out of their comfort zone. They're happy with the status quo and being where they are. Last point, they think lukewarm is good. But we're not going to call it lukewarm because that doesn't sound good. Instead, we'll just call it balanced and relatable and obeying. Man, 
know what Paul had to say about that in 1 Corinthians 9? He wasn't balanced. Instead, he said, To the weak became I as weak. Why? That I might gain the weak. He wants to win the weak to Christ. Look what he says. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save how many? Some. He's willing to do anything and everything just so he can save some. You know, it's like we were talking about the outreach study last night. How many miles? What, seven and a half miles? 22. 22? Yeah. Where did I get seven from? Seven hours. Seven hours, that's right. 22 miles to travel to save his son. Will we go to our next door neighbor and invite him to church? And this I do for the gospel's sake. Because he realized what he had been saved from and he realized that he owed a great debt. Not to earn his salvation, not to keep his salvation, but just out of a love for his Lord. They are in truth, sickening to God, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and their only hope is the Word of God. Back to Revelation 3 as we end here. The correction. We're not going to spend too much time on these last three verses because that's what, well, the second page on your study sheet, that's what I was intending to do next week. I guess I had it printed out this week too. We're going to spend more time in those three verses because next week we're going to close out church history. We're going to close out, I guess you'd say, part one of our study in Revelation before we dive into the tribulation period. And we're going to look at how do we take the counsel here in verses 18 to 22 and how do we become Philadelphians stuck in Laodicea? How do we live as though the Philadelphians in this lukewarm church? That's what next week will be about. So we're not going to spend too, many, too much time on these verses, but just as a, as a recap, he tells him in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. On your outline, buy from the Lord true and eternal riches that have been tried in the fire. I think we've made the case throughout this entire class so far that this book has been tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And boy, is it gold. Next, he says for them to cover their nakedness with the white raiment of God's righteousness. My, how far we've come. What was Adam and Eve's first reaction after they took of the fruit? The shame of their nakedness doth appear. And they knew it. Read again verse 18. Well, verse 17, he calls them naked. And he says, uh, Buy white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And then he says, Anoint thine eyes with eye salve. They're naked and they don't even know it. People are caught up in the sin in the church today and they think nothing of it. I've heard... Oh, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail with this. I have heard stories of Christians, not in other churches, I'll just say that, who have gotten involved in the sins that back when I was in youth ministry, we would have wept over that if a brother or sister fell into that kind of stuff. Wept over that. And now it's just kind of happening blasé. That means just it happens kind of just, well, it happened. Oh, well. Thankfully, God forgave me. And we're all good now. A sin like that, like that, that I won't go into detail with, that would have completely and utterly wrecked a believer just 10, 15 years ago. Now it's happening regularly. They are to anoint their eyes with eye salve so that they can clearly see. I'll give you one last historical tidbit of the city of Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was surrounded by these hills. And these hills had a very unique color to them. One day, somebody found out that these hills contained this very interesting clay that gave the hills its unique color. And as they started monkeying around with some chemistry of the hills and the clay, they found out that if you mix it and concoct it with certain ingredients, you could put it on your eyes and you could put it on your ears, and it has these healing components. And it was sold all throughout the Roman Empire, again, during the time of John. Isav, quite literally. You know something interesting? A few years later, somebody would actually do a test... And they'd find out there was absolutely zero healing components in that ISAV whatsoever. And yet, people kept buying it. And yet, people kept selling it. 
If I think about a metaphor for today's church, that's it. Somebody standing behind here selling something, claiming it has healing power, but it's all selfish intellectual humanism to try to make the person in the audience feel better about themselves, feel okay, and so because they feel okay, they think they're healed of their sin, and they keep giving money to it, and the guy behind the pulpit keeps getting richer. That's the state of the church today. Think about the martyrs and everything they've been through. If they see this stuff going on right now, they would have words with us. Next. He says, receive the rebuke and chastening of the Lord and zealously repent from the Laodicean mindset. What are you prepared to do? You know where the word zeal first shows up? I'll talk more on this next week. A man by the name of Phineas in Numbers 25, which we talked about during the Pergamos church period. When they were committing whoredoms with the daughters of Moab, one man stood up and made a difference. He was zealous for his God. And lastly, hear Christ's knock and open the door and let him back in where he belongs. This is the theme of the excluded Christ. Look at verse 20 again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not a salvation invitation. He's knocking on the door of the church because they kicked him out. He came unto his own people in John 1.12 and his own received him not. The world rejected him. They crucified him in 1 John 2, 2 and John 15, 18. And now his own bride, the church, has kicked him out of the church that he purchased with his own blood? That's been your Lord and Savior's life throughout the last 2,000 years. You guys realize this is how it ends. The Cinderella underdog story. Cinderella didn't make it home. Instead, she's blitzed at the ball. Wasted. That's the church. Imagine if Cinderella ended that way, no one would see that movie. And yet, we're living it. Application for Bible believers. You must come to the realization that we are Laodiceans. We have to constantly be in the Bible and line ourselves up to it. We have to obey what God says instead of only talking about it. We will conclude Laodicea next week as we look at the recipe, the cure for this Laodicean plague and we'll close out part one of Revelation and finish out church history. Can I get a volunteer to close in prayer?